0: Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of high-quality, easy-to-follow video tutorials, including many about photography. For seven days of free, unlimited, in-depth courses, visit Lynda.com slash TWIP. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the simple online accounting solution built for small business owners just like you who want to skip the headache at tax time. For a limited time, try FreshBooks free for 60 days. To get started, visit GetFreshBooks.com now and enter This Week in Photo in the How Did You Hear About Us section.
1: This week on TWiP, Joseph Lanaski is joined by Craig Colvin and Jeffrey Totaro to discuss Blurb, teams up with Amazon, curating automated photography, and Walmart sues a photographer's widow in a copyright dispute. It's Monday, May 19th, 2014, and this is TWiP. Welcome back to TWiP. Frederick Van Johnson is on assignment? Yeah, I don't buy it. He's in champagne, drinking champagne. I don't know why it says he's on assignment, but he is not here, and I am. Joseph Lanashki, I am your guest host, and this is episode 361 of This Week in Photo. Joining me to discuss the topics of the week and more are Craig Colvin and Jeffrey Totaro. Welcome back to you both. What's everyone up to lately? Craig, You go first.
2: Uh, hi, uh, it's good to be back. Um I uh, recently was at the Palm Springs Photo Festival, which was great, uh, mingling with a bunch of other photographers. Um, it was my first year going, and I'll definitely be going back. Uh, and then since then, I've been busy preparing for a group show I have happening in a couple of days uh, here in San Jose and been uh, matting and printing uh, photos like a madman.
1: Awesome. What are the, what's the show Let's about?
2: Uh, It's called, it's Raw Artists. It's a one-day show. It's a bunch of different type of artists. Ah. They have them all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's photographers, uh, you know, sculptures, artists, musicians, um, people that make jewelry. It's kind of just bringing a whole bunch of different artists together. Uh, And in this particular show, I believe there are seven of us photographers that are going to be there. It's just an opportunity to show your work and, uh, you know, network some.
1: Sounds great. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Thanks, Jeffrey. How about you? What have you been up to lately?
2: Well, first of all,
3: nice to uh, uh, meet you both. I've heard Joseph on the show a n- number of times, and uh, so it's nice to share a show with you. That's Thank you. Yeah, show. I don't. Th-
1: we've never been on together before, have we? No. no.
3: And uh, Craig, Craig, you as well. Looking forward to doing the show with you. Um, yeah. Uh, for for me, I'm an architectural photographer. So once uh, when, when spring comes. Um, uh, you know, knock, knock wood, uh, things usually perk up business wise. So it's been been nice. Uh, we've had a little decent weather here over the last few days. So we've been running around trying to get some some exterior shots done, which uh, is always the the sort of backlog because the weather always shuts you down. But so I was out today shooting a few of those. And then otherwise, um, on Wednesday this week, I leave for uh, uh, East Lansing, Michigan, where I'm doing a, a, a workshop, a four day workshop, which is sort of a it's kind of a uh, called a private workshop. It's just a uh, a group of people that wanted to. Um, invite me out there to teach them some things about architectural photography so i'm re- really looking forward to that sounds like a great group of people and uh haven't been to east lansing so and there's some cool buildings there to shoot so it'll be a lot of fun
1: that's awesome you know my assistant is really into architectural photography it's his kind of his big thing what are you shooting with are you shooting with regular dslrs or are you shooting with something fancier are you shooting with sh- tilt shift lenses or?
3: i shoot well i started uh in the film days so i, I Originally started shooting 4 by 5 film, and that kind of camera is what really got me interested in in photography to begin with. So I used I used to be an architect and um, used to be an architect and uh, structural engineer. So I got into uh, photography when I discovered the view camera. And so when digital came along, I really wanted to hang on to that whole thing. So um, basically, I ended up shooting with uh, a technical camera and a, a Phase One digital back, and um, so I use uh, Alpha bodies and. Um, uh, the Phase 1 back
1: and I just got their new IQ260 about six months ago, which is mm. really fun. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. I've never shot with one of those. That's something I'd love to get into. Yeah, it's part.
3: definitely. Yeah, it's it's really, it's a pleasure to use. And I actually find it simpler to use than uh, than a DSLR for, for a lot of reasons I won't get into. But <laughs> yeah,
1: sure. I would imagine so. <laughs> awesome. Well, very cool. And Welcome. So, for me, I actually just got back from Las Vegas. I was recording two brand new Photo 101 training courses for lynda.com. So, that was really exciting. The first one is a macro and close-up photography. And the second one is a low-light photography. And these are both uh, basics, you know, Photo 101, as the name says. And the first one will be out probably the macro and close-up. I think it's going to be out pretty quickly, within maybe a month to six weeks or so. And then the low-light course one will be out a little bit after that. So super excited about that. The basic photo 101 photography 101 course that I have on lynda.com right now is super super successful and that's been really exciting to see so lots of people asking for more so I'm very happy to be able to provide it which is a perfect segue into thanking our very first sponsor which happens to be lynda.com
0: this episode is brought to you by lynda.com that's l-y-n-d-a.com You can learn what you want, when you want, with high-quality video tutorials at lynda.com. And Lynda gives you everything you need to improve your skills. Lynda offers a variety of instruction. You can learn software, creative business skills, photography techniques, web design, and more. They have over 2,000 courses and over 100,000 tutorials. They offer courses for all levels and they add new courses each and every day. Their courses are taught by industry experts and their instructors are accomplished professionals that are at the top of their fields and passionate about teaching. Linda's courses are high quality video productions and the videos are made in state of the art studios. They use screenshots, narration, live action, smart boards, charts, graphics, and audio. No homemade YouTube videos here. Linda.com courses are convenient. You can take them anytime from your computer, your tablet, or your mobile device. Each Linda.com course is structured so that you can learn from start to finish or just jump to in to find a quick answer. You can quickly search transcripts to easily find the information you're looking for and for one low monthly price of $25, they give you un- unlimited access to the entire course library. You can start improving your skills with a free seven day trial, including unlimited access at lynda.com twip. Show your support for this week in photo at lynda.com twip. We thank lynda.com for their support.
1: lynda.com. What do you want to learn today? All right, well, let's get into the stories here. So the first story that we have to talk about is something that I'm personally pretty excited about. I think this is really awesome here. And the basic thing is that Blurb, who I'm sure many of you have heard of before, they are the publisher of photo books. If you want to make your brand, your own totally customized photo book, you can do that online uh, through blurb.com and order that book and have it delivered to your door they're now selling through Amazon so you as a publisher as a self-published publisher as a photographer or anybody can now create and sell photo books through amazon.com now, obviously Amazon's going to take a small cut of that but even if you're only even if, you, if you only ever sell a single book you can do this which i personally think is absolutely just one of the coolest things i've heard in a long time i'm super excited about this so i'm going to throw the first question to you craig what do you think the market is like for photographers who want to self-publish their work is this something that people are going to take advantage of
2: uh, well i definitely they'll take advantage of it uh, you know everybody would like to have their work on amazon <laughs> um, so uh, but the as far as how successful they be it's all going to be about how successful you are at marketing your book Um, You know, just having it on Amazon, uh, you know, it's a small part of successfully selling a book. Uh, You really have to drive people to Amazon in order to purchase. Sure. Right. Uh, I've had several friends who've self-published their work, and they've gone through the process of actually putting it on Amazon themselves. And with uh, a couple of them had limited success. Right. They sold, you know, maybe ten to fifteen copies to their family and friends, and that was (laughs) it. Uh, Whereas others have, you know, sold. Several hundred. Um, And it's all about just getting the word out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one of the keys here isn't just the fact that it's on Amazon. Um, It's that they handle all the back end of it, or at least they and Blurb handle all the back end of it, so you don't have to print and store and ship out books yourselves.
2: Right, which is a huge, huge uh, benefit. Um, And just, just getting your book published on Amazon is a lot of work. There's a lot of steps you have to go through. Um, getting an ISBN number, uh, all these forms to fill out with Amazon. So having just a checkbox on Blurb that you just click saying, do this on Amazon for me, is you know, could be a huge time saver.
1: I think it could be. Jeffrey, mm-hmm. what, what kind of opportunities do you think this opens up for photographers?
2: Well, I think it's um, tremendous.
3: But as, as Craig was saying, you still need, similar to the the marketing effort, you still need obviously the content uh, that, that people are going to want to see. But I think the... Uh, just the idea that it's almost—you know—so many people have like the Amazon uh, app on their phone or, or something, or they're Amazon Prime members, and it's become so seamless. So uh, you can almost sell a book now with just a Twitter link. You know, you just put it out there, say, Here, "Here's my book," and people can just—you know—jump right on it, grab it right from their right from their phone. Uh, I, I so think you the... actually
1: literally can because I think Amazon now has something where you respond with a hashtag and it automatically adds that item to your cart. Wow! You, can <laughs> you literally can <laughs> shop with Twitter. Yeah, I mean, that's tremendous.
3: <laughs> I mean the, the the internet has done so much to uh, disrupt many businesses and I think the one that we we noticed first as just general consumers was the book market when when Amazon first came out and so now they're even sort of not just disrupting it but now deconstructing it so much that that everybody can can publish a book and it's easy to sell but as long as the content's there, and uh, but it's, it's, it's easier. You still need the content, but it is much easier these days to generate buzz about your book and get it out there and maybe get it reviewed and get it in the right people's hands so they can start um, um, yeah, making, hopefully, positive comments about it and putting the link out there. So I think it's going to be great. It's another revenue stream maybe that people hadn't considered because they thought it was too complicated to have a book. And when Blurb first came out, then, yeah, you had the book. But then, like, like Craig said, well, yeah, you have to have a, a room full of books in order to have them on hand to sell them. So they take that out of the way completely. And the price is very reasonable. They're only charging up, up to 50 cents a unit. And if you're selling your book for 20, 30, 50 dollars, then that's that's nothing.
1: I think the 50 cents, uh, there's a quote on here of 35 and 50 cents per unit, depending on the size of the book. And that's if you're going to actually warehouse a large print run of them, which is fantastic in itself. I would imagine that means you have to pay the upfront cost, though, of printing all those books. But for the print-on-demand, which is essentially what what they're offering, if you you only ever sell one book, it's going to be printed on demand by Blurb and shipped by Blurb. It's just sold by Amazon, and then they're taking essentially a um, like an affiliate fee. They're taking, I think, it said 15 percent. Although I'd have to. That's correct. Oh, there. Yes. Okay. I missed right. that part. Yeah. So that's you know I mean 15 percent is not bad at all. um And that's you know obviously the the blurb is still going to get their cut. Um, you know the cost of the book itself, Amazon gets mm-hmm. their share. But yeah, I mean gosh, if you can print up a really really nice, I haven't looked at blurb. Uh, itself to see what type of print products they have now. I mean, it's been years since I've looked at them, but obviously I'm going to be looking at them again. But let's say you could do a really, really nice high-end coffee table book that costs maybe 50 or $75 to print, and if you can sell that for you know, 150 bucks and 15% to Amazon mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, it's it's still a decent profit, and certainly it is the opportunity you didn't have before.
2: Right. Their their quality has improved significantly. I I used them back when they first started and was not really impressed with it, Uh, But at the Palm Spring Photo Fest, a lot of the photographers there were carrying their portfolio around as a blur printed book. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, And I was I was just, you know, really amazed at the quality and how much better they've gotten.
1: So you do have a lot of choices as far as print stock and sizes and Uh, yes, they've
2: they've opened I mean, they've added uh, well, dozens, if not hundreds of new sizes and styles and Uh, soft cover, hard cover, all that uh, from what they used to just offer.
1: Wow. That's very exciting. Really exciting. Yeah, it's
3: inspiring. Maybe I'll come up with a book project. Well,
1: absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that, that really, yeah, exactly. And that does bring us to the next question of does this disrupt the traditional publishing model? I mean, obviously now anybody can publish, you know, to a degree anybody could before, but it's just that much easier now to publish and actually sell the things. What is this, what effect does this have on the larger traditional publishing model?
3: I think it's it could go either way in the sense that if you think about the the big publishing houses and the well-known names uh in any industry but you the, the know take the photography industry the well-known names that that you know or people that publish books I think for their generation and their careers they'll continue to probably pursue it that way because it's already a channel that they have established but I think if you look 10 15 20 years from now it's going to be completely different so I, um and hopefully for the better, uh, in the sense that there'll be more work out there that maybe didn't get uh, picked up by the big publishing houses, and you didn't have to go through all that trouble. But uh, but at the same time, hopefully still 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 good work that's um, that's making it to the top. Yeah, like anything, that just because you put it out there doesn't mean it's going to sell. But right, um, so it'll sort of self curate. I think whereas before the the book publishers were the ones that were curating things and and controlling what got out into the world. Now it's mostly just going to be sales and reviews and blog posts about other people's work that'll help bring it up to the top. Kind of like a lot of other things. Uh, anyone's, even just their, their blog, for instance, some rise faster than others. Um, sure. Even, you know, podcasts, anything like that, that just gains traction. So I think it'll just be a different market. Everything's going to change about how it's distributed, how it's how it's marketed, how it's consumed. So, But yep. interesting stuff, though. Yeah, I think I
1: look at it kind of like the music industry, where obviously we still have the major record labels, but a lot of artists can choose to go totally independent and... Even if they don't sell as many records because their name is not out there as much, if they can make more money doing it, selling fewer, and they can make the same amount at the end of the day, then obviously they're happy. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. It's very very cool.
2: Right. The the challenge is going to be finding the the nuggets among all the various books that of are going to be out there. There's going to be a right a lot of uh, books nobody's going to want to buy. Um, yeah. Just just be <laughs> cluttering up Amazon. Uh, so you have to you're going to have to go probably third party. Review sites or whatever to find the the popular books. Yep.
3: Yeah, I wonder if the the review people are going to become the gatekeepers. Before it was the publishers, so maybe the, the gatekeeper thing will now become the you have to get it reviewed by a certain person or get it or a certain site sure. to get noticed. Yeah. Sure. That's Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. A very interesting point. Right on. Well, cool. I'm excited. Do um, you guys either you think you're going to possibly publish Ab- something you wouldn't have done before?
2: Uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm, already, I'm, I'm already working on it. Are you? Right good. Right okay. On. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Beat me to it. Awesome. Well, super. I'm I'm excited for that. And for anybody listening out there, just remember, just because it's out there doesn't mean they'll buy it. You do have to still have to market the thing. So create an amazing, awesome book, and make sure that everybody you know talks about it and reviews it and tweets it and shares it. And, and who knows? Maybe uh, maybe it'll be the next great photo publisher. It's pretty awesome. I'm excited. All right. So let's move on to the next story. Next story is about uh, curating automated photography. So we've got, obviously, everybody's got a camera, right? We've all got anything from our iPhone up to big, heavy DSLRs or medium format or large format in the case of some. Um, But everybody's got cameras. And these days, cameras are being built into everything there is. So there's these Google Glass. You have watches that have cameras in them. You've got GoPros that you attach to your helmet and run around skiing or doing whatever you're doing. And there's just constant, constant onslaught of footage. And there's these new devices like the um, the Autographer and the Narrative Clip that are basically little wearable cameras that just shoot everything. So no longer is this the idea of pick up your camera and compose a shot and push the button to capture the image that you want. It's just capture everything there is, everything around you, and then curate it later. It's just the idea of, uh, you know, uh, spray and pray almost. Just constantly shoot and hope that you get something decent and... Um, And take a look at it later. So, you know, looking back historically, I think that it's safe to say that we've always been taught that it's better to slow down. Um, It's better to take your time to pre-visualize a shot, compose your shot, make sure the lighting is good. But now suddenly we have this ability to basically capture absolutely everything that we see. Does this even make sense? Is there a place for this? I mean, when does automated photography even make sense? Craig, what do you think?
2: Uh, Well, it's a a good question. Um, I think it might be good for uh, like journalistic endeavors, um, where you're maybe showing more of a story leading up to where you took your photograph. Uh, so it, as an as a accessory to your camera, uh, so it's going to help with the storytelling, right? Uh, I, I see it like a war photographer. They're, you know, they're they have to get to wherever they're going to do to take their shot. And it might be interesting to show some wider angle shots and and give a sense of place and scene. Um, I don't see this though for you know people doing landscape photography. You're not gonna. I don't see how you could possibly ever take a, a good landscape photography on something like this uh, with the spray and pray type method.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 it is interesting. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. I mean, security, backstory, um, you know, like I said, leading up to the event, that could, could be interesting. But I really don't see it, at least today, as, as being quality enough to do anything else. But, of course, that's always changing, isn't it? I mean, our cameras, no one would have thought that an iPhone camera could be as good as it is a couple of years ago. And here they are looking pretty fantastic and make big prints of it. And uh, and so on. So it's it is getting to that point where the images that we capture are getting to be really, really good quality. So, Jeff, does this bring us to the point where we're going to end up as photographers spending more time curating these kind of automated photographs, these pictures that are just happening constantly than we are actually creating and composing our own unique images?
3: Yeah, I think that's uh, there's a certain sort of sadness in, in my mind when I think of something like this. It's like, okay, you know, the, the way I think of it is, you know, if you were to hang one of these these automated cameras around your neck, which is how some of them are meant to be worn, um, that doesn't make you a photographer because the, 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 it's just a, a, an accessory. You know, it's a piece of electronics that's just taking photographs as as programmed.
1: It makes you a camera with so, legs.
3: Exactly. <laughs> it'll, yeah, it'll, yeah, I was gonna say it makes you, makes you a glorified tripod. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: So, uh, uh,
3: so I think it's kind of. It definitely has its place. Like Craig was saying, there there are certain things I could see. Uh, if there's some uh, event, some uh, sporting event or something, where you could maybe set up a few of these around the the track or the course or whatever the sporting event might be, where you can then you're capturing everything constantly, and and then you know, if it's an auto race or something, there's a big wreck or something, then you would have you know tons of photos of that wreck, and you could go curate those out. Um, but uh, obviously for someone like me, I'm, I'm sort of the epitome of the slow photographer. You know, architectural photography is very slow and calculating, methodical, uh, scouting many of the shots ahead of time, being there for, at the right time of day. I was in fact shooting something today and I was waiting not only for the right time of day, but it was, uh, there were some nice clouds in the sky and some clouds reflected in the glass of the building, some were up, up, you know, up, clouds you're seeing directly. And I'm waiting for different combinations of clouds. I mean, so clearly it's like, you know, I'm taking my time. Um, some automation in that process might be nice, but it's still a matter of just sort of selecting the right moment. But the, uh, yeah, this kind of tool has its place. Some people may find it appealing uh, for event. Maybe you, you have a wedding and you give many of your guests something they can just clip on their lapel, and then you can spend four days after the wedding co- trying to, to collate and curate all those photos. Hmm. Um, but it, it seems more like a, an annoyance to me than... Than something that's really valuable, unless there's a specific use for it. So I think it's just another tool in the photographer's uh, kit of things that they could draw on if they need that kind of coverage for something specific. Sure.
2: Well, well Jeffrey, would it would it uh, be helpful for you to if you were to automate your camera now? So you set it up, as you said, you're waiting for the clouds, set it mm-hmm. up, and have it take a series of photos every you know so often while you you know can sit back and relax and then go look at them later. Does that it's make bu- sense?
3: There- there are times where, where that might be helpful, where you're, you're waiting for certain conditions. Um, some of those conditions are even just pedestrians on the street in front of a building. I'll Often shoot a variety of of groups of people moving by, and even cut and paste various ones from different exposures to come up with a nice combination of things. So, there are times, but I also try and uh, shoot tight. Uh, I don't I don't like to have, when I get back. I like to have minimal editing because there's there's actually a lot of post production that goes on. So. Uh, of course there's first the editing of just figuring out which ones you want to even start with as raw material. And then we go into the whole post-production process. So in a sense, it would be nice if it were automated to a point, but also at the end, I don't, I don't want to come home with a thousand photographs. That I have to look through and, and pick, which is the best one. Cause I feel like personally, I would just get lazy at it and probably not end up picking the best one anyway. So if I shoot 10, uh, <laughs> versus a thousand, I'm much happier with the 10 that are probably a little more precisely
1: chosen. Sure. Yeah. No, fair how,
2: about, how about you joseph what do you well what's your take on this i you know
1: I, I like what you said in the beginning about how it can be great for the background story the leading up to story if you're documentary style kind of a, a story around the photo itself and you don't always know necessarily when that story will be will want to be told right if you're out shooting uh, I don't know, just whatever. You're just out street shooting and you happen to come across some epic event that you are the first photographer on the scene and you shoot that. That's fantastic. You got those pictures. Awesome. But what if you had the video leading up to it or a thousand still photos leading up to that event that may not be the perfect composition, may not be great lighting, that may be half covered by the the lapel of your jacket, but they're there because you always had the camera on. Now suddenly it becomes useful to have, and then suddenly you're thinking, well, gee, maybe I should have this thing on all me all the time. So from that perspective, I could see it being quite interesting. It certainly isn't going to replace the high-quality images that we create with our cameras that we actually think about and compose, but, you know, even that can change. You never know what's going to happen and how lenses will change and how we capture images will change. But I could certainly see having it as an always-on thing. Just you're out and about shooting, well, may as well. If nothing happens at the end of the day, by the end of the day, you don't even look at it. You just hit delete, reset, and start over the next day. There you go. Right.
2: Well, it kind of reminds me of a uh, an app I've been using since the beginning of the year called uh, One Second a Day. Uh, it's where you record a one-second video every day, and then you compile those into, a you know, I, I I've been doing monthly videos just to kind of document what you did in the past month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it, it's certainly not a work of art, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, just having looking at it and you can get a lot of context and remember what you were doing just hmm. seeing these one second snippets. Can you, um, can you
3: shoot more than one a day and then only post one or you, yes, you can, you more? can,
2: you can, uh, you can shoot as much video as you would like to. And then you select the one second out of all the video you shot that you would know. like to apply to that day. Hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, it's kind of fun. Um, I, I could see just, uh, recording your, you know, recording your life this right by taking photos, uh, with one of these devices and and then maybe new, making at the end of the year something a little compilation of where you've been and what you've done uh, mm-hmm. just you know share with family and friends it's not again it's not going to be uh all that great of photography but it's not about that it's about capturing the memories
3: yeah sure awesome one one automated camera that i i, I forget the name of it uh, i just thought of it but it's um that i think is really fun It's a, it's a it's a sphere it has 36 cameras in it, and you <laughs> throw it up in the air <laughs> and it has an accelerometer in it. And when it reaches its peak height and starts to just before it starts to fall, it takes 36 pictures and then and, and you end up stitching together some th- sort of 360 degree panorama. And I, I think that's brilliant. I mean, that, that's just totally fun, you know, automated, but still kind of at, at your own whim and how, how far and where you want to throw it. So very cool. Have you guys seen that camera?
2: I, I have. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. It looks, looks like it'd be I, a lot of fun. You wouldn't need a drone for aerial photography. Say <laughs> like how far.
2: Well, I, you I would be tempted to, to throw it off a cliff or something and have to go retrieve it. And at least yeah. with the drone, it would come back to me. Right? <laughs> That's
1: true. Yeah, I don't know. When you pay money for these things, you usually want them to come back. Right. Just thinking. Yeah. Just thinking. Cool. All right, on. All right, let's move on to the last story that we've got on here. This one. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. I think I pulled this one out of. Uh, off a of petapixel, I believe, and uh, basically, what's happening is we all we all know Walmart. We all know uh, the Walton family that's behind Walmart, and apparently, the Walton family is suing not a photographer, but the wife of a deceased photographer, who photographed the Walton family long, long ago, back before they uh, the notes say before they owned Walmart, but they founded Walmart. So I have to assume it means before they founded it because they believe, the Walton family believes, that they own the copyright to these images. Apparently they tried to buy the originals, uh, their negatives, so it certainly as a while ago, they tried to buy the negatives for just $2,000, and the wife said, uh, no, thank you. And so they've decided to sue her, claiming that they own the images, because they own the copyright to these, because they're pictures of them. Now, I think we don't need to get into the basic law of this. We all, as photographers, know that the photographer owns the copyright unless signed otherwise. So that part, it's kind of hard to imagine how they could possibly win this in court um, other than just being bullied into, into submission. So it's a it's a very interesting point to see and we'll of course link to the story of this in the show notes. Um, but let's just start off with one of the basics. Was the photographer careless in not filing these photos with the copyright office? And we have to assume that they didn't because otherwise this story would not exist. So were they careless not filing them with the copyright office? And do you file copyrights, uh, file photos of portraits, or sorry, file portrait photos with the Copyright Office? Uh, Jeffrey, let's start with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't do portrait photography, I realize, (laughs) but hey. (laughs) I don't. Not often. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Well, there's a couple of points here, and uh, I think that... Uh, again, the, the dates, the, which is sort of the, the, one of the other points we'll talk about, but the, the, the timing of this may have made it difficult or, or at the time may have not seemed necessary to file it. But um, I, I file stuff that I think is, has a, a, a broader reach. Uh, oftentimes, I'll photograph a building uh, for an architect uh, or a contractor or the group of people that are involved in the design and production of the building. And uh, but but often I'm not too worried about people stealing the images because it's kind of a finite group of people that might want an image of of any said building. If it's something more like a iconic skyline shot or something, I I do uh, register those with the Copyright Office because they might find their way out beyond their intended use. Uh, So I think it's uh, there's a couple of points to make and one and again, I'm no lawyer, but a lot of this I think might come down to the point that uh, and it also applies even just general business practices too. But if you don't defend your copyright in, 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 in any other time except when Walmart comes knocking then a judge may see that as well you don't, you don't really care about your copyright because you haven't defended it in the past. So I'd be curious to see if they were aggressively pursuing Walmart to say hey the, you're, you've been using these photos for all these years and you need to compensate us for it uh, or if they only brought this up um, as a means to a countersuit that these photographs have been been used uh, by Walmart and so i think that's going to end up possibly being a a big linchpin, like I've been told by several people in different seminars I've taken on business and things like that, like even just including terms and conditions on every estimate that you send out is important because if something comes up uh, in the future and you don't show a history of having sent those terms and conditions out every time you send out an estimate, then it's not really a business practice of yours. It just becomes, well, here are my terms and conditions, even though this person never saw them. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to prove that this is the way you do business. And... If you look at a company like Apple, they, they sue everybody they can find that's violating their intellectual property. And part of that is just a strategy to say that, hey, we defend our, our copyrights and our, our patents and everything vigorously so that it, they just have a track record of doing that. Right. So I think that may become one of the bigger points in this case is, is what their track record of of not only registering the copyright, but defending it and, and just being aware of, of others other uses of the photos.
1: Certainly. Well, it is one of the interesting points because the the copyright law, as it's written, doesn't require us to file our images as copyright. The photographer owns the copyright the moment he pushes the button. He or she pushes the button. So by law, we're not required right. to. It's really a formality, and it gives us that extra solid piece of document, a uh, piece of paper to put in court and say, look, we own the copyright. There's just no two ways about it. Um, but you, you really do have to wonder, and you kind of brought this up about, is this a countersuit or what's going on? And as I understand it, the family is actually countersuing. So Walmart started the suit. The family's countersuing uh, for usage rights because they've been using the picture without, without compensation. So that'll certainly be interesting to see how it plays out. So I think they're taking the right approach on it. But you do have to wonder, because these pictures are so old, why do they even care? Why is Walmart going after these images that if they were truly shot before the family... Founded Walmart, it was founded in 1962. So who cares about these images that are that old of the family? Craig, do you have any insight on that, or think? Can you think of why they might actually care at this point?
2: Um, just speculation. I mean, it might be that they, there might be something more to this, which was not reported, and that the uh, maybe this widow is is using these photos somehow, right, or is trying to to sell them, and this is how Walmart is trying to head her off and stop that. Sure. Um, i'm 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 guessing you know I'm pretty sure there was no written contract back when these were shot originally, so the usage is probably you know very very muddy uh, on what the Waltons were are allowed to use these photos for um, it does sound like they're counter suing saying that they were giving them to third parties which they shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. but uh yeah I'm not it is kind of strange why they would go after her now right I and I have no clue as to why that might happen, but yeah. there may be more that comes out of that and when it gets to trial,
1: yeah, it's certainly gonna be an interesting story to watch the um the last point that I found interesting on this is looking at the dates, just doing a little bit of sleuthing. So, as I said, Walmart was founded in nineteen sixty two if these photos were presumably taken before that or even around that time or even anywhere over the next fourteen years, the current copyright law was actually written in nineteen seventy six so it will be interesting to see how that comes into play if uh, I have no idea what copyright law was before that, a uh, little bit mm-hmm. before my time. So I'm not sure where it was at then or if that's going to come up into play. And if they end up saying, well, look, copyright law wasn't clear back then. And so our client believes they own it. And that's just all there is to it. I, I,
3: I think that's um, I, I didn't think of that until I saw your third point there, uh, Joseph. I, I think that may be a, certainly a significant uh Thing that The court's obviously going to look at that and see what, what the what the law was at the time the photos were taken. Because, as you say, the, the photographer uh, owns the copyright as soon as the photo's taken. So at that time, uh, when the photos were done, you have to, I assume, go by the law of the day. And, uh, right. But I think maybe the family's interested in the photos because... Um, just part of the family history or maybe they're they significant photos because of uh, who's in the photos and what what it represents in terms of their timeline and maybe they're just you know assembling some sort of um, you know just documents in terms of the history of the family and they they feel those photos are important sure yep yeah.
1: interesting stuff for sure well it'll it'll be a story to watch and hopefully it's something that we'll have so we'll uh, be able to report on in a future TWIP episode because I do think it's definitely interesting and, and it's great for all of us. It's one of those things we really do want to pay attention to. It's like, um, and I know this came up in last week's TWIP, the the whole thing with Amazon, um, trademarking the ability to shoot a, a subject against a white background. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in court because it's obviously we haven't heard the end of that and we haven't heard the end of this Walmart case either. And if they do win, it will certainly set some interesting precedents. that's going to uh, prickle the hairs on the back of every photographer's neck, or at least it should. Um, right. We'll see how it goes. All let's move on to the listener Q&A. So this is a segment where we answer a question that has been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. And this week's two-part question comes from us from Amanda Mitchell via our Google Plus community page. She says, you have mentioned the importance of off-site or cloud backups, but there's so many services, I don't know which one to choose. So two-part question, the first question is, is there a service that does off-site backups as redundancy, as a redundant secondary backup that will auto-backup an external drive as well as the Mac's local drive, because some of them are, some services are um, specific to just the internal drive. And the second part of the question is, does image quality suffer from the process of transmitting files back and forth to and from the cloud? It's a very interesting question for sure. So. Um, let's just start. Let's see, Jeffrey. Why don't you start? Do you first of all? Do you use cloud backup at all? I
3: use uh, I use some some cloud services. I use Carbonite to back up my the way my office is set up. I have a um, twenty seven inch iMac that I use for email and invoicing and all the sort of business stuff. And that computer is I use Carbonite on. I also I have a local backup. Uh, I use SuperDuper for that to copy to a separate drive, and then I use Carbonite to duplicate the the internal drive. Uh, on that machine for you know daily backup, and then but I really don't do any image. I again I shoot medium format. I've got um, a, a couple of Drobo's on my desk that I don't think would ever <laughs> fit in the cloud. <laughs> um, I've got I don't know twenty or more terabytes sitting right here. So, um, but I did use for a brief time because I, I thought it was going to work. Uh, there's a um, uh, a service called CrashPlan, mm-hmm. and it will back up anything that is uh, attached to your computer and I tried to use it to actually back up this Drobo and it was going to take six to nine months (laughs) to do this and I actually started it Uh, it got hung up a little bit there were just some other, it says if you're going to store above a certain amount that you have to go in and change some settings and it wasn't really going to cost anymore but it was just a matter of how the computer was going to run. It was, they wanted it to dedicate, I think, more memory, something about the settings that were that discouraged me because it was going to actually slow down my actual work on the computer. Mm-hmm. So I actually did, ended up disabling it. But again, I have a, a, an enormous amount of data. So uh, for someone else who, who doesn't have so much, the, I would try out this, uh, check into this crash plan uh, service. And At the time, and I tried it maybe six or nine months ago. Uh, so just now it would have finished had it, had it started. <laughs> um, uh, it was a, a flat fee for as much as you could cram on there mm-hmm. so uh, it so it d- didn't charge you any additional uh, for the amount of storage and it did it really didn't care where it was coming from it just had to be attached anything attached to that computer at any given time so um, that's worth a look to see they may have changed it you know I read their fine print or, or some of it and it says we do reserve the right to change these I, the idea that it's a unlimited backup so they may well have done that who knows sure so but I would look it up crash plan
1: Cool. Cool. Um, Craig, what about you? Are you doing cloud?
2: <clears throat> I am. In fact, I'm using Crash pa- Crash Plan. Oh, you may uh, know more than it. I had the exact same issue that none of the other services would work with an external drive and all of my photos are on an external Drobo and I wanted to back them up. So Crash Plan was the only one I found that did that. Um, and I I'm not I have fourteen terabytes on my Drobo. I'm only update uploading uh, I think it's 1.4 terabytes is up in the cloud right now, and it did. It took uh, it took nine months to get just all for 1.4 terabytes. Uh, to get up to one terabyte. Wow, took, okay. took nine months. Now, how fast uh, is your then, connection? Uh, it's relatively. It's like a up upstream is 25 megabits per second, I believe. Yeah, that's, so that's not,
1: bad. not not too bad. That's 25 um, up is fantastic.
2: Right, but I think I also might have gotten throttled uh, for a while there because, uh, you know, my service provider said yeah, you're you're uploading too much data, and they mm. cut me back. And so I adjusted when uh, CrashPlan would do the uploading, and it seemed to then go much, mm. you know, a higher throughput overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you
3: find what did you these sort of setting adjustments that I'm remembering? Do you, do you recall anything like that after you got above <clears throat> a certain?
2: None I did not anything. have any issues with that, although I'm doing it on a Windows machine, not on a Mac, and mm, it might have okay. different requirements. Uh, I did look today, and they're, they've changed their plans a little bit, uh, and it says it only allows network drives on Macs and Linux and not on Windows. But I'm doing mm. it on Windows, uh, so <laughs> I, I don't know what the issue is, is there. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's nine, $9.99 a month for unlimited storage, mm-hmm. if, if you can get it up there yeah
1: <laughs> right well, but that is an interesting point. I mean, Jeffrey, you said that you know you made the point of it was going to take six to nine months, and well, if I'd started it'd be up there now, and I think that's a really valid point. Cloud backup doesn't have to happen overnight. even if it takes a couple of years for your initial backup to actually happen, mm-hmm. your major crash might come in a couple of years in a day, right? It might come six years from now or ten years from now. and getting that data up there backed up is key. you It's obviously it shouldn't be your only backup. You need to have a local backup as well but I think having that cloud backup is pretty key. Um, I'm a huge fan of Backblaze. That's the backup service that I've been using for many years, and it actually does allow you to backup any number of connected hard drives, external hard drives. So my current Backblaze, I was just pulling up my iMac, um, my specs 4.7 terabytes of data uh, backed up to Backblaze right now. So that is all yeah. of my originals, all my raw files, and a ton of other stuff as well. So. It can happen, and yes, that took a long time to initially happen. But um, you know, I can't speak for the other services, but I know Backblaze quite well, and I know that they they employ some pretty crazy file compression algorithms. I don't know what they're doing; it's voodoo. But man, they can upload a huge amount of data in a very small amount of time, and um, and it was surprising how quickly that did go. So it's it's definitely worth looking at. So Backblaze is, is certainly something to check out on there. And, and just five dollars a month, and there you go. It's uh, <laughs> it's an incredible deal. So if you're if you're doing that, and that gets into the second question here of, of does the image quality suffer? And that's it's a, it really is an interesting question because we're you know obviously we're thinking well it's all just bits, it's all ones and zeros. So could it possibly be recompressing it? Because they are recompressing files to so some on some degree they're compressing files dramatically. But the simple answer is no, they're not compressing files in the sense of compressing JPEGs. Your JPEGs aren't getting recompressed, your files, your photos aren't getting recompressed. They're doing something else to compress the files in a way that isn't fast access. Like you could think of it like a uh, like a zip file. If you were to take a file on your desktop or a folder on your desktop, and let's just say it was a 100 megabyte folder full of a bunch of different types of files, and you compressed it, and it gets down to, let's say half, it gets down to 50 meg. Well, that file size, that smaller file size, it hasn't changed the quality of the images. What you've gained is 50 megs of space, but what you've lost is the ability to access it instantly. You no longer have the ability to click on and open it immediately as you did when they were uncompressed. And that's essentially what Backblaze or any of these services, are doing. And none of them are uploading stuff without compressing it first. So it's getting compressed, but not in a way that's affecting the quality of your work, of your images, but just in a way that makes it impossible to access it in real time, which is what the file is when it's just sitting on your desktop. So, to uh, to Amanda, don't worry about the quality of your images; that are not going to be affected by it. And it looks like you should check out both Backblaze and um, uh, CrashPlan. Sorry, is that what you guys were saying? Yes, and crashline. Yep, check them both out. Now, does Backblaze
2: have the ability to mail them a drive, and they uh, to they do it?
1: not. No, that was that is one of their the things that they don't do. But when so, I actually ended up having to start over restart my backup from scratch. Um, gosh, it's probably been two or three years ago now. Something, I don't remember exactly what happened, but for whatever reason, I needed to start over completely. And I was looking at these multiple terabytes that had to be uploaded and looking at my bandwidth and looking at my data caps and so on and trying to figure out what to do. And I talked to all the companies that do offer the seating and even with the seeding it seemed like um, it was like a one terabyte seed or a two terabyte seed it wasn't going to get everything and I kind of felt like if it's not going to be everything there's not much point in it I may as well just push it all via the cloud so so no you you can't seed by sending a drive in but um, but I think it'll upload a lot faster than you expect Um, definitely worth looking at yeah I'm gonna give that a try and see how that works yeah absolutely All right, well, before we jump into the picks of the week, we've got one more sponsor to say thank you to, and that is afreshbooks.com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks,
0: the simple online accounting solution built for small business owners just like you who want to skip the headache at tax time. For a limited time, try FreshBooks free for 60 days. To get started, visit GetFreshBooks.com now and enter This Week in Photo in the How Did You Hear About Us
1: section. It is time now for our Pick of the Week segment. So remember, your pick can be anything as long as it is photography related. Jeffrey, I'm going to let you go first because I see Craig doesn't have one written down. So. <laughs> 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 what is your Pick of the Week, I, Jeffrey? Well, mine is, uh, and uh, I, I have
3: not handled this camera yet, but I, I look forward to giving it a try. Uh, I've been a big fan of these um, mirrorless cameras that have been coming out in the last few years. And I do shoot, I shoot medium format for my, um, for my commercial work, so to speak. Uh, but I also use a, a, Leica M9 for, for travel and also somewhat for the commercial work as well. So I'm a big Leica fan and they recently released this, uh, like a T series. It's a new body and a couple of new lenses for it and it's their new mirrorless platform. And somehow I always manage to mention this on every podcast I'm on, but it's just <laughs> funny to think of the Leica M9, right? As it's a mirrorless camera too. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's a rangefinder. So, but it's interesting to see that, uh, this cameras come out, it's about 16 megapixels. I think the body sells for about $1,800. So it's not cheap, but it's, uh, one nice thing, uh, cause I'm always looking to potentially repurpose my existing Leica lenses. Is that you can get uh, a small adapter to put the M lenses uh, onto this camera, and which is tempting for for this platform, and also for the uh, the new Sony uh, A7, you can do the same thing. But the uh, so I'm gonna check out the the Leica. If um, if not before the Photo Expo in the fall in New York, I'll uh, maybe see a local camera store. But one of my local stores is a big Leica dealer, so I might go over there and and, and check it out just for. Just for the ease of um, of use in terms of other camera platforms to have and I always have in the back of my mind putting one of these mirrorless cameras on a on a on a multi and flying it around. But hey. <laughs> what's that? I don't know if i put a like a T on a multi but hey. What's that?
1: How do I put a like at T on a multi rotor? That sounds kinda of scary. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I saw someone put a put an Alpha with a phase one back on it on multi rotor. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're very experienced flyers though, I would that's, assume.
1: That's gutsy. So, yeah. so it looks
3: like a great camera, so
1: Okay, mm-hmm. so what is, what's the advantage of that to you over your M9 that you've got now?
3: Well, I think the, uh, maybe a, a little faster, I don't know exactly what the the focusing features are on it, but some of these mirrorless cameras have these uh, sort of focus peaking, because what, what I love the Leica lenses, so if I could take the, the quality of the, the Leica lenses... And cause the M nine is a rangefinder, and it's, it's very accurate focusing, focusing, but it is manual focusing. Mm-hmm. And obviously with the, with you put the same lens on the mirrorless camera, it's still gonna be manual, but you would at least have, uh, I'm hoping, I'm not exactly sure I check all the specs, but I'm hoping that it would have a, um, a focus verification that would be, uh, similar to some sort of focus peaking that would that sort of overlays a mask over the areas that are definitely in sharp focus. Sure. So f- for that sort of thing, it would be nice. And, uh, you can get an electronic, um, uh, viewfinder option for it, or just, you know, just focus on the, on the LCD on the back. So I, I, I see it as a sort of a, a quicker handling, um, lightweight sort of fun, easy camera, uh, even though, you know, it's not necessarily inexpensive, but, um, just for, for, uh, for travel or even for me for even potentially scouting other jobs, things like that.
1: Well, it certainly is one of the more affordable Leica cameras. Yes, <laughs> that's true. I mean, $1,800, that's still, what, like a third of an M9 or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, close to that, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so hmm. it's interesting. I know we talked about it. Uh, it was on, it was one of the featured uh, stories of the show, I don't know, several weeks ago, last time I was hosting, actually, and uh, and I have not touched it, and I'll say the same thing today. I haven't touched it. It seems to me um, all the... The fancy look of it, the beautiful look of it, is not the most ergonomically friendly look. It seems to me, but um, mm-hmm. you know, reserve judgment until I've played with it. And you know, I like to you know hate Leica because I can't afford one. So, <laughs> 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 but right. no, it's uh, it's interesting. And I am I personally am a huge huge fan of mirrorless. So it's mm-hmm. it's it is definitely interesting to see them going into the space and see what's going to happen with it. Um, well i mean like you said there already were mirrorless cameras but different different type of mirrorless
3: yeah just think of it differently yeah yeah I said last time I was on a few weeks ago too I went on this whole rant about mirrorless but I think it's really um definitely the way of the future and it's sort of the sort of where these cameras where digital cameras should be yeah no reason for a mirror.
1: yep yeah and i'm right. i'm basically what i, I want to go where you're at now where you're shooting medium format and um and then the the smaller the mirrorless or the lightweight cameras are you, do you shoot dSLr mm-hmm. at all
3: I have a, um, a pretty complete Canon um, 5D Mark II system mm-hmm. uh, with their 24 and 17 tilt shifts that I use for the architectural work. And I use that camera as a... I, I always put it in the car on every job because it's the backup system. Right. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's plenty capable. I just prefer the medium format. Um, but I also use it if we're doing... Uh, say we're on like a just a, a one-day shoot, and the client says, "Can we get you know two shots at dusk or dawn or something?" At that really short, limited period of time where you have to be ready, uh, I'll often have my assistant um, set up on a second camera, and that'll be you know, the the Canon. And uh, I'll just I'll I'll set up the shot, but I'll have I'll have the assistant operate the camera during mm-hmm. that that narrow period of time when when the the light is fading fast. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah, it's it's good for other things for higher. Speed uh, higher ISO because uh, the the DSLRs still do high ISO sure. generally better than the the medium format. Although the the new Phase One two, IQ two hundred and fifty does uh, high ISO
1: very well. Cool, very cool. Well, brave new world and the cost of yeah. medium format coming down. The Pentax six hundred and forty five Z, really excited. I'm that's personally I'm really excited about that, and I'm hoping to hoping that will finally be the opportunity to make the the leap for me into medium format. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Right on. Craig, how about you? What's your pick of the week?
2: All right. My my pick is, I normally do gadgets, but I'm going to divert from that this time. Uh, and it is to plan a dedicated photography trip. Uh, go someplace with the sole intent of doing photography. Uh, and when all you focus on is the photography, you're, you're going to end up taking better photos. Uh, doesn't have to be far. Uh, I plan one a month and some of them are local, just you know, maybe going up to San Francisco or... Uh, nearby, um, or I tend to, when I'm going on an existing trip, I'll tack some time onto the end of it. Hmm. So at uh, Palm Springs Photo Festival, I added two days to the end of the trip solely for photography, and I spent one day at Joshua Tree with a model and one day at the Salton Sea, uh, finishing off a body of work that I started a year ago. Um, And they were probably the most productive photo trips I've ever taken. Mm. So uh, I I recommend it uh, whenever... All you're doing, you know, I, I take photographs when I go on vacation with my family, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm distracted and I am i don't really spend the time I should. I, I'm rushed. And by planning a trip where all I've had, I'm only there for photography. I take my time. I end up taking better photographs as a result.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, this, you know, family mm-hmm. vacation is just supposed to be spent with family. We probably shouldn't be focusing on the camera all the time, no pun intended. Um, it's definitely better to spend our time with our family when we are with them. And uh, that's great to be able to take a trip and just dedicate it to photography. That's fantastic advice. And and I, I like your point about it doesn't have to be far. You don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to break out the passport. It can be just to the neighboring town and just go out and do something you wouldn't normally do, but just go out there to take pictures. That's awesome. Yeah, just that's
2: dedicating a, that time.
1: Yep. Yeah.
3: yeah, that's a, that's a great... Um, Certainly a great pick. Uh, There's plenty of times where I've gotten the opportunity to just sort of be on your own and you're out photographing something. Like the first time I went, I remember when I first got out of college, I went. I was fortunate enough to take a trip to to Paris for a couple weeks, and I was there essentially on my own. But there were two friends of mine that were there. Uh, They happened to be working there, so during the day I had the whole all day to myself as a young photographer, running around Paris, which was tremendous. Uh, And that. But then I went back a couple of years later with a girlfriend at the time, and it was I still got some good photos, but it was like a, it's a whole different thing.
2: Yeah, because
3: <laughs> you because know? right. you, you, uh, trying to convince someone it's like, well, we can't have dinner tonight because <laughs> because <laughs> I'm gonna I want to go out and shoot the sunset or the we have to get up early to shoot the sunrise or want to do right. this or do that. Right. So and, it's uh, yep.
2: yeah. And so I do. It's, I, it's, I, it's, go ahead. As I was saying, I I tack days onto the end or beginning of trips. So I'm going to Oregon next month with a group of friends. And I just tacked four days on the end of that trip to go photograph the Oregon coast. Um, the car actually is cheaper because I'm renting it for a week now as opposed to the three days we were going to be renting it for. Um, so and I just have to, you know, find cheap, cheap hotel to stay at for four additional nights. It, so the airfare is already paid for. So it's not really adding that much to the cost of the trip. But I get four days of dedicated photography out of it.
1: That's Absolutely. Awesome, and I think we you, last time we were on together. I think you were talking about this trip. You're you're going to be up north in in Oregon, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm I'm probably going to go as far south as uh, I, I won't get down to your area, uh, Ashland. Probably Crater Lake would be the furthest south I'm going to go.
1: Cool, cool. We'll keep in touch. Um, if yeah. you do make it to Crater Lake, um, I could possibly head out there. It's not that far from here. All right, that'd be great. I haven't been up there in over a year, so it's beautiful. It's See, a-, a dedicated photography trip. There you go. There you <laughs> go. Should should happen. All right, my turn. So uh, my pick of the week is actually something that was talked about by our guest, Sarah France, that was on the show either last week or the week before. And um, her... Apple Aperture 101 training course with Creative Live is coming up in just 10 days from when we're recording this. So, it'll be about a week from when most folks hear this. That is May 29th to 31st. So, this is Apple Aperture 101 with Sarah France on Creative Live. Of course, you can go to the Creative Live website and find it or I'll be posting more information about it on my website at ApertureExpert.com slash CreativeLive. So if you head over there, you'll be able to get some more info about it, jump uh, jump straight into the session, or, of course, make the purchase on that later. So if you are into Aperture, as obviously you know that I am, and Frederick's not here to mock me about it, so uh, I can say (laughs) Aperture rocks! Even if it is a little old in the tooth. Um, and uh, and uh, check out the Apple after 101 training with Sarah France. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Twip. Thank you, Fresh Books. Thank you, Squarespace. And thank you, Jeffrey and Craig. Where can our audience find you? Craig, you go first.
2: Um, Craig Colvin uh, All things uh, Craig Colvin, you know originate there so you can find my twitter handle google plus all the various social network links there on my site awesome
1: jeffrey
3: uh the best place to find me is at my website dot and you can also find me on twitter at, at jeffrey Tocharo. hope nice. to be tweeting uh later in the week from this uh workshop we're doing should be should be a lot of fun awesome
1: I'll be sure to check that out. And you can find me, Joseph Lanaschke, online at photojoseph.com for the world of photography and apertureexpert.com for my world of aperture. And the same things on the Twitters and everything else. It's at photojoseph at aperture and all of that so with that be sure to visit our website at thisweekinphoto.com or if you want to touch base with frederick van johnson you can find him at frederickvan.com and with that it is time to take that lens cap off